Now hear God's holy word from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, today we do rejoice and exult and delight in the resurrection of our Savior Jesus. And we pray that we might be so gripped by the, the truth and all of the implications of this resurrection, that, that we might be transformed, that we might know what a solid foundation of hope you have laid for us. Cause us to trust in you alone, we pray. Remove all doubt and all fear and all anxiety. And today, as we think about these things, remove, us, uh, f- remove from us all distraction and remove all error And may we uh, rejoice purely in you and all that you are for us. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. People of God, our society is undergoing a crisis of trust, a crisis of confidence, a crisis of belief. And you might say that this has been going on for maybe 150 years or longer, but it seems to be more acute, more, more intense. It feels like the, the heat's been turned up somewhat. When a society begins to unravel and come apart, one of the first signs of the demise of that society is a lack of trust, an erosion of confidence. All relationships are built on trust, and a society is just a big network of relationships, uh, a tightly woven tapestry of friendships and communion. And those bonds begin to break when trust is lost, when confidence erodes, the society begins to unravel. And like a sweater, when it starts to unravel, the more you pull, the faster it goes. And so the more trust is lost, the looser our connections and the quicker the disintegration. So trust is in short supply in our society. We do not trust our leaders. We do not trust corporations. We do not trust institutions. We don't trust journalism and we don't trust academia. We don't trust each other. Trust no one seems to be the motto. It it used to be said, don't trust anybody over 40. Well, now, now that we're all over 40, it's no, don't trust anybody. Don't trust anybody ever. And No doubt we're suffering this failure of trust, not simply because we're paranoid, not simply because we like conspiracy theories. 
We fail to trust because we've been lied to. Leaders have lied to us. Journalists have lied to us. Corporations have lied. And so to insulate ourselves, we start to adopt this attitude that you can't believe anything ever. We are prone in that position. We are prone to cynicism. Now, there's a difference between healthy skepticism and cynicism. A, a healthy kind of skepticism says, you know what, I'm, I'm not believing unless you give me some reason, some cause to trust you. I, I need to weigh this thing and determine whether or not it can be true and whether I can know that it's true. Well, it's the way that John the Apostle wrote, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So John says you need to have this kind of healthy, biblical, spiritual skepticism because you can't believe everything you hear. There are false prophets. Skepticism, a healthy skepticism, reserves trust, but is willing to hear. Cynicism, however, believes the worst and thinks the worst as default. Even when there's really good evidence presented, the cynic refuses to believe anything and is especially impervious to the truth. If he believes anything, it's more likely to be a lie than the truth because his mind is, is twisted towards cynicism. The Bible uses another word for the cynic. The Bible uses the word scoffer. Proverbs says the scoffer is arrogant. The scoffer doesn't listen to correction. The scoffer doesn't hear wisdom. Now, why do I bring this up? This is important for us to identify this trend of cynicism and the unraveling of trust in our culture because you and I live in a world populated by cynics and scoffers. You step outside of your Christian circle of friends and you quickly find that cynicism is the air that we breathe. It's the water we swim in. It's, it's our atmosphere. People whose trust in institutions has been eroded and cannot and will not put their trust in anything else. It's like they've built up these messiahs and these, these false messiahs and these false idols have failed them. They've lied to them. And now they say, well, that means there can't possibly be any truth anywhere, <laughs> which, is, which is absolutely false and, and illogical. Just because you have been uh, mistreated over here doesn't mean there's somebody and something that, that is true and trustworthy and you can put your confidence over here. But, but there are those who say, you know, we, there's, n there's nothing called truth. And even if there is some truth, we can't know it. And if you say you know the truth, well, then you're just fooling yourselves. This is, as I said, this is the atmosphere we breathe in this, in this world. We soak this up six days a week from the internet and the news and the radio and the, the magazines and the stuff we get in the offices and the corporate world. We get this and then, and then we, we get to worship about 90 minutes a week. We try to put everything all back together to get reoriented to the world and ourselves and reoriented to God and say, wait, no, there are things we do know. There are things we do trust. There are truths that we believe so passionately that our entire lives are built about, around these things being true. And I, and I pray that you have more than just 90 minutes a week where you reorient yourself to the, to the truth. But, but living in this climate of doubt and cynicism it's especially critical that you and I continually speak truth to each other and to ourselves to hear over and over and over and over again that the remarkable 
extraordinary accounts that we really read in the Bible, they really happened. They really happened on earth in time at places that you could go walk around today. The birth and ministry and miracles and crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ were real historical factual events in human history, just as sure as the Declaration of Independence was signed, just as sure as the Titanic hit an iceberg, just as sure as the, uh, the, the Peloponnesian War. These are historical, factual events. And we trust these things are true, verifiable, recorded history. The men who were inspired to record these events for us were so careful to write in such a way that what they wrote could be verified and sustained by testimony. And so they keep bringing up the proofs for the veracity, the, the trustworthiness of the things that they wrote. They knew in the first century, they knew how hard some of this stuff was to believe. It's not like in the first century, people saw resurrections and virgin births every day. It's not like you just walk down the street and oh yeah, there's water turning into wine everywhere. They knew that these things were hard to believe. And so when they wrote them, they wrote them in such a way so that nobody would doubt that they knew that they had seen these things with their own eyes. Over and over again, they appealed to firsthand testimony so that, so that while they were writing these things, anybody could go talk to the guy they mentioned by name. You could go check this out for yourself. You could follow up. If Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Paul and Peter were making things up, they would have tried to be a little bit fuzzy with some of the details so that so you could never call them out on it. You could never prove that they were lying. But that's not the approach of the, of the inspired authors of the New Testament. They knew that what they were writing about was so important, they can't risk inaccuracies. So they tell their audience things like this. In Acts 2, Peter says, we are witnesses of these things as you yourselves know. On that day, he said, we were witnesses of these things and you know it. The, the Apostle Peter wrote in his second epistle, he says, We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. John says the disciples heard, they saw with their eyes, and they touched the hands, touched with their hands the word of life. Every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every one of them ends with Jesus out in public after the resurrection, visiting various groups of people. So this wasn't a private resurrection that only a handful of people saw. There were many eyewitnesses. And here in 1 Corinthians, Paul brings all of this forward to drive home the point that when we speak the words of the gospel, when we repeat the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are speaking true things that happened in history, in the real world. Now, why do we need to spend time on this and reaffirm this? I might ask you, do you believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus? You would say, yeah, absolutely, I believe it. But we're always fighting a battle of doubt. We're always fighting against fear and worry that we might be wrong on this. The, the, the accuser, the devil, wants us to doubt. He wants us to think, oh my goodness, I, I could be I could be way out to lunch on this. And there's this whole strain. It drives me crazy when you pick up 
uh, uh, commentaries and scholarly works on the Bible, there's this, there's this strain of liberal biblical scholarship. They want to read the Bible. They want to teach the Bible. But they want to read these events as if they're nothing more than parables or allegories. They, they assume that ancient man was ignorant. They just think he couldn't, he couldn't really describe what he saw, the ancient man. But he wanted to communicate certain timeless truths through stories. And so he came up with these really elaborate fairy tales. And aren't they so cute? And aren't they so interesting? But really, when you get down to it, they say, you know, nobody comes back from the grave. Babies aren't born to virgins. There's no worldwide flood. God didn't create the world in six days. You see, these are all just ancient man's struggle to describe the world and what he saw. So our job is to kind of comb through what is written and try to figure out what really happened, what was really said. But what they miss is that the Christian faith invites a level of historical scrutiny. You see, when the gospel writers wrote their works, they, they named who was Herod, who was Caesar, who was governor, who was in charge of the Sanhedrin. And, and you don't do that unless you say, look, this is history we're writing here, and we're calling on you to come check it out. I mean, it, it's not like, you know, the, uh, the Three Little Pigs author stopped to say who was king at the time that he wrote what he was writing. Uh, you, don't, you don't get, you know, the Little Mermaid, who was in charge. You know what? It doesn't matter. No, th this, is, this is verifiable history, and it's evident in the way that it is, it is written, that we're, we're, we're self-consciously writing history. One of the ways that we can tell that the New Testament authors intended for us to believe the historicity of what they were writing is we can see how the New Testament authors treated the Old Testament. How did they treat the Old Testament? Did they treat the Old Testament like this book of fairy tales, like this loosely connected, disjointed kind of stream of stories that really don't flow together and don't make any sense and didn't really happen? Is that how the New Testament writers treat the Old Testament? The answer to that is an absolute no. That's not how they treat the Old Testament. The New Testament writers treat the Old Testament like history. When they mention Abraham and David, and when they talk about Adam, they're talking about historical figures. When they talk about Moses, they're not talking about, you know, there might have been four or five guys who kind of pulled together and, and did what Moses did. No, they talk, about, they talk about Moses. They view the Old Testament as true and reliable. Jesus says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus says, Moses and I are like this. If you believe me, you've got to believe Moses. If you've got to believe Moses, you've got to believe me. You can't have one without the other. And yet we still have people who profess to be Bible scholars who say, well, Jesus said and did some wonderful things. But Moses, man, that guy was out to lunch. Have you read some of that stuff? How can you believe that? <laughs> Jesus says, in his own words, you can't do that. It's a package. Me and Moses, we, you can't separate us. We're, we're like that. Jesus understood Moses to be reliable history. So here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes to these Christians at Corinth who are apparently doubting the reality of the resurrection. Wait a minute. Ancient man doubted whether Jesus was really uh, uh, resurrected from the grave? Really? I thought they were ignorant. I thought they didn't have any logical skills. I mean, and here they're, they're doubting it. They have fallen into the temptation towards scoffing and cynicism. And it, and it appears that they've kind of become embarrassed of Paul. They've become embarrassed of the gospel. 
The resurrection is not a respectable doctrine today among the elite, nor was it a respectable doctrine then among the elite and powerful and, and those wise in the world, in the world's wisdom. It's not a respectable doctrine. Nobody, nobody steeped in a pagan culture is going to believe that this is, this is what happened. So Paul responds to their questions with the message here that the, the resurrection of Jesus is fundamental to the gospel. And we're going to read uh, what, what Paul says to them. And I'm just going to walk through it and make some comments along the way. So he says, and I read a, a few minutes ago, he begins this way. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. These events that I told you about, I told you about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I communicated this to you. This is not some side doctrine that you can take or leave. This is fundamental. This is foundational to your salvation. By these events, you are being saved. And here's the first hint of something Paul's going to say later. I'm going to spend some more time on, but he hints at it here. If the message of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus is not historically accurate, then your faith is in vain. If Jesus was not bodily raised from the grave after dying on the cross, the Christian faith is empty. It is corrupt. It is a lie. It is a waste of time. It is vanity. It is worthless. If Jesus did not come out of the grave alive after his death on the cross, our faith is in vain and you are wasting your time. We're all wasting our, I'm wasting my life if this is not true. And this is, what, this is what Paul opens with. Our hope is empty and we're all a bunch of liars if this did not happen. So Paul is going to remind them that, that, that this story is, is true and he's going to square it with the testimony of the witnesses. He says in verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. I didn't make this up, he says. I didn't, I didn't pull this together. I, I didn't come up with this. This message I'm giving you is simply I'm passing on to you what I received. I heard this from, from the, the uh, apostles. I've received it by faith, and now I'm passing it along to you to do the same. And what is that message? He says that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Paul won't let us forget why all of this was necessary in the first place. We can have a nice academic uh, discussion about the, uh, uh, the, the implications of the resurrection, whether or not it was true. But Paul says, <laughs> he brings it right back down to earth, and he says, I want you to remember that all this is necessary because you're a sinner. I want you to, I want you to remember that all this stuff that we're talking about is important because you're a rebel against God. Because you have violated his holy word. You have committed cosmic treason against the eternal God of creation. That's why we talk about these things. I don't want you to forget that. Because of our sins, Jesus died. And it's only because his crucifixion and his resurrection really did happen that we can be delivered from the guilt and the power and the corruption of those sins that have put us out of fellowship with our creator. And then he continues... I promised to pick it up, but there's, this is so extra textually layered right here that we got to stop every three words, but I'll pick it up in a minute. 
and that he was buried, verse four. He said, so, so just to get the rhythm here, I delivered to you, first of all, that, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried. Of course he was buried. Why do we always say Jesus was crucified and was buried and rose again the third day? Why do, we, why do all the gospels stop and give an account of the burial of Jesus so that we wouldn't have any doubt about the reality of the death of Jesus. Jesus didn't swoon. He didn't faint. He didn't collapse. He didn't pass out. He didn't black out. He died and was wrapped up and was put into a tomb. And, Paul continues, he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now, this is the second time he said according to the scriptures. So he's saying, not only did I not make these things up, not only are they verified by many eyewitnesses, but these things are the fulfillment of Scripture, which means that Jesus wasn't carried along as a victim on a, on, a, on a conveyor belt of events that he had no control over. These were the reasons he came into the world, which were told before by the prophets. This all happens according to the Scriptures. Now, I'll read a few more verses. Verse 5. And he was seen by Cephas, who you know is Peter, then by the twelve, after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. He says that most of the people who saw Jesus are still alive, which displays Paul's confidence in his testimony and, and displays his confidence in their testimony. What he's saying is, you can go interrogate them. You can go check it out. If you want to investigate their claims, go talk to them. Go, go ask Peter. Talk to James. Talk to the rest of the 12 if you want to. Ask them what they saw and what they heard. Now, now we might ask, well, of course Jesus would appear to his friends, right? Obviously, that's, that's awfully convenient just to appear to your friends. Why didn't Jesus appear to Caesar or to Pilate or to Herod or to the Sanhedrin, the high priest? That, that would have been really something that would have made an impact, right? Well, there's several reasons Jesus doesn't go there. First of all, Jesus told the unbelievers who rejected him back in Matthew 23, he says, I will not appear to you again until I come in judgment. You're not going to see me in fellowship. You're not going to see me in love. I'm, next time I see you, I'm coming in judgment. That was a promise he made and a promise he kept. Secondly, you remember the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Jesus says, even if somebody does come back from the dead, this generation won't believe him. Faith is never the product of evidence alone. You can't, you can't reason your way into the kingdom. You can't, you can't uh, uh, reason by logic your way into fellowship with God. Faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And, and so the hardest heart is only made more cynical when you lay all the evidence before him if he is not going to submit to the Holy Spirit and trust and believe. So Third, the fact that Jesus appeared to his disciples leaves room for them to do the important work of witnesses. Jesus determined that, that the gospel is going to spread through witnesses. He, the gospel is going to spread through these men he chose. That's why he called them in the first place. Now he lets them do their job. He appears to them and he sends them on their way to do what he called them to do. Fourth, and, and I think this is really kind of drives the nail in the coffin, why he didn't appear to Pilate or Caesar or whatever. If the Gospels were fiction, 
If they're just writing things, whatever sounds good, and if I were just making up a story, I would say, you know what? He, he needs to appear to Pilate, or he needs to appeal, appear to Caesar and tell them a thing or two while he's at it. If you're making stuff up, that's how you would write it. But the fact that he didn't make those kinds of dramatic appearances lends to the authenticity of the account. It, it would have been really funny for him to show up in Pilate's bedroom in the middle of the night and say, I'm back, you know, and scare him. But that didn't happen. And it didn't happen, again, because Jesus already said, I'm, you're not seeing me again. I'm coming back in judgment. And as Paul shows us, there is a list of verifiable witnesses. And then Paul says in verse 8, Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. Paul puts his own encounter on the road to Damascus uh, in the same category as the other resurrection appearances of Jesus. Paul says, I was the last in line to see the Lord. And because of that, he calls himself, I was one abnormally born. The, the word he uses there is kind of an impolite word referring to miscarriage. He says, my birth into the Christian faith was ugly. It was, it was abnormal. It was, I, I, he says in so, in so many words, he says, I'm kind of a freak of nature. The other apostles have been with Jesus for years while I spent that time persecuting the church. Paul was an outsider. And so he's saying, even to me, even to this mess, Jesus appeared. Verse 9, for I am least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. He says the other apostles, the other believers witnessed it, I witnessed it, and we all say the same thing. We're all in agreement on the events in the Gospels, and this that I deliver to you, this is the basis of your belief. This is the message that has brought you over from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life. This has delivered you from the world of darkness to the world of light. And none of this is based on fairy tales. None of these are stories made up to teach some kind of lesson or some kind of, you know, it's not some kind of parable. And again, we're told by various liberal commentators and seminary professors at liberal seminaries and those guys on the History Channel, do you ever pick up the History Channel this time of year? It's awful with all these guys explaining how nothing in the Bible really happened. But nothing in the Bible really happened, but you can still kind of get a message out of it, right? You know, the resurrection didn't really happen, but it, it's all this stuff about you, you, you get second chances. That's what the resurrection is about. or It's about the continuing presence of God in the hearts of the believers. That's what the resurrection is about. We're told by these guys that nothing really changes if Jesus wasn't born of a virgin or if, if, if Lazarus wasn't raised from the dead or if Jesus never healed a blind man or if he was never uh, resurrected bodily from the grave. If none of that happened, we're told nothing is really different. The message of Christianity is really the same, right? When you get down to it, the message of Christianity is the same message as all world religions ever, right? What's, what does it boil down to? Just be nice, right? That's, that's the message. Be nice. See, that only works if the Christian faith is just a nice set of ideas. You, you get the impression from this, some of these guys that when it comes to the stories, you can take it or leave it. When it comes to the ideas, that's what's important. It's important to think the right things. And Christianity is basically a set of things to think about. 
Uh, it's just a path of spirituality. It, it's, it may be a, a, a paradigm for spiritual discipline, but it isn't, and it's never been. The gospel is not merely a set of ideas or things to believe. The gospel is good news about a course of events that happened in the world, a series of events that changed the world to a degree that it will never be the same again. And those who believe that those things really happened and those who live in the light of those events will never be the same either. So preaching the gospel is not about getting people to celebrate ideas. It's, it's not about getting people to rejoice in ideas, but to accept and celebrate events. Jesus was born of a virgin and was made man. Hallelujah. Jesus was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. Hallelujah. Jesus suffered and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again. Praise be to God. And he ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. These are events. These are not ideas. These are not concepts. And by accepting and celebrating these events, we rejoice in the man at the center of these events. The Christian faith is based on historical events that have changed and shaped the world and which call us to a radically different life from those who don't believe those things happen. Remember this, young people, especially those of you who are in college or getting ready to go to college, if your, your liberal professor, you know, he wants to uh, kind of mock creation or he wants to mock the flood or he, wanna, he wants to mock the miracles of the Bible, that guy is not just denying some hokey old Sunday school stories. That's not what he's denying. He's denying history. He might as well be denying the Peloponnesian War. He might as well be denying, you know, uh, the life of Julius Caesar. He's denying history. And if you deny history, it is you that are living in fairy tale land, not me. I, I choose to live in reality. And in reality, there was a man named Jesus who died on a cross, was put into a grave, and came out of it three days later. That is history. And if you don't believe that, I'm, I'm not the one living in, in La La Land. You are. You're living in a land where that didn't happen. And that's not the creation. And that's not the world we live in. So Paul continues in verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. Against all this evidence that you've been given and the difference you have experienced having believed in, in Jesus, how do you say that there's no resurrection? How do you say that there's no possibility of physical life after death? And he continues, if there is no resurrection of the dead and Christ is not risen, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. And yes, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. If the resurrection isn't true, what are we doing here? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus isn't risen. And if that's the case, then our preaching and our faith are useless. And on top of that, we're all liars. He, he puts it to them this way. Are, are you prepared to say all of this? Have you thought this through? Are you prepared to say that I'm a liar and you're a liar and your faith is useless? The word he, he says, he, he uses, he says we're found out, we're found false witnesses is literally he's saying we've been caught out. We've been detected. In other words, if the resurrection is not a reality, it can be said in no honest way that the, the apostles are good men. 
who have given good and sincere advice. Not at all. If they have lied about this, they're wasting everybody's time. You see how firmly Paul stakes everything on the resurrection. The whole message rises or falls with the resurrection. Verse 16. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Here are some things that go away if I don't believe in the resurrection, if I deny it. If there's no resurrection, then death conquered Jesus. And not the other way around. Jesus didn't conquer death. Death conquered Jesus. Jesus was like any other man. No, nothing special. If the resurrection didn't happen, there's nothing special about Jesus. If the resurrection is not a reality, and if that's the case, if there's nothing special about Jesus, then we're still in our sins. We're back to square one. We have done nothing to improve our status or our position. We have found no way to answer the question of how we're going to find forgiveness and freedom from our sins. Also, Paul says, not only that, but everybody who has died is just dead. They're lost forever. And if all this is the case, then we're more miserable than anybody else. Uh, Paul never shies away from scrutiny or logic. Paul isn't happy to live with competing, contradictory beliefs. Oh, maybe the resurrection didn't happen, but still most of this is true. He's not happy to live that way. The resurrection has real obvious implications, and if the resurrection didn't happen, then the implications all go away. You, you can't have a Christianity without the historical uh, events that it's based on. Paul is saying, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, sin hasn't been dealt with, the world is as it ever was, there's no answer for death, there's no answer for sin, and we of all people all the, are the most miserable. How are we more miserable than those who've never believed? Because of this. We're more miserable because we've been given hope, however fleeting. We've been given hope that things were going to be okay. We've been given hope that things are going to work out, that God was putting the world back together again. But instead, if all of a sudden we find out Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then the veneer has been pulled back for us. We have seen all the ugliness and all the horrifying wickedness of the world. We've seen it for what it really is. And at the same time, we have no hope that anything is going to change. We have the rug pulled out right from under us. The unbeliever has never really seen the world for what it really is. They don't admit that things are that bad. They don't, they don't see wickedness for what it is. They don't, they don't really understand it. They don't see sin as sin. They know that there's something called evil, but they have no solution for it. But for us, we've recognized that there's a problem and that, that sin is a problem that must be dealt with. Pain and sickness and death must be confronted. Death is something that can be defeated. And then to have the hope that Jesus is the answer and now to have it pulled back, why then we are the most miserable. We are the most to be pitied. That would be an unbearable state to live in. But, but, you got to love the buts in scripture. We always look for the buts and we underline the buts because it's every, it's the reversal. Let me just read this from verse 20. But 
Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him that God may be all in all. Paul has been going down all the way up to this point. He's knocking out the things. Here's what goes away. If you deny the resurrection, you lose this and you lose this and you lose this and you lose this. But... Because the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ really did happen, now he shifts gears and he pulls everything back up. Jesus is indeed raised from the dead. And here's what that means. First, he's become the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. The resurrection is like that first basket you bring in from your spring garden. You know, it's, it's a promise that the, the, the plants are alive, they're growing, they're producing fruit. And it's an expectation of even more fruit to come. Oh, there's that first tomato. There's that first cucumber. You know, there's that first good stuff and there's more coming. Jesus in his resurrection is like that first basket. It's a guarantee that there's more harvest on the way. Jesus isn't the last to pass from death to life. He's only the first. It's the beginning of a much larger resurrection. That's the first thing he says. Secondly, he says in Jesus' resurrection, we have a reversal of the curse. Every, every person ever born is born with, with Adam as their covenant head. They're born with Adam as, as, their, as their representative before God. But now we have a better representative. We have Jesus who comes and interrupts death stops it and starts turning it backwards and delivers the promise of life. Third, in Jesus' resurrection, we have the spread of life and Jesus' dominion over every created thing. Then the fourth thing that we receive in Jesus' resurrection, the expectation that there will be one day no more death, only abundant life, more, more life than we know what to do with. Here's what Paul lays out for us. Quickly, if, if you somehow hold to a kind of belief in Jesus but deny the resurrection, you're still in your sins. You haven't, you haven't accepted the fullness of the gospel. You haven't believed. You know all the guilt and the pain and the ugliness of sin and the, and the crippling fear of judgment, but apart from the resurrection, there's no salvation from it. There's no escape. There is no other hope except in the resurrected Jesus. Secondly, without the resurrection, there's no comfort in suffering. There's no comfort in life. We experience pain and deprivation and loss and death for nothing. There's no, there's no goal. There's no direction. There's no point. With the resurrection, in light of the resurrection, we know that however bleak or dark or depressing and troublesome life can be, this is not the way the world was supposed to be. And Jesus has lashed back against the darkness and death. And he has started turning the gears the other way. He has, he, has, he has started to work life out in the cosmos. Thirdly, without the resurrection, death has the final say for all of us. That's it. After you die, there's nothing more. No eternal life, no heaven, no, no reincarnation. <laughs> there's just nothingness. But in the resurrection, Jesus shows us that, that the grave is just a pathway to more life. 
And, and fourthly, without the resurrection, there is no future. If death conquered Jesus, Jesus is not going to conquer the world. There is no answer for evil. There is no answer for sin. There is no answer for our guilt. There's no answer for the grave. Things are only going to get worse and worse and worse until we finally destroy ourselves if Jesus did not come out of the grave. So this is the challenge the resurrection poses to us in our cynical culture. Do you want to live in reality? Or do you want to live in fantasy land? Do you want to live in, 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 in a reality where the resurrection did happen? Or do you want to live in a fantasy world where it didn't happen? accept the historical reality of Jesus' resurrection and this whole cascade of understanding and blessing follow after. Forgiveness and hope and life and comfort. Accept it, child of God, and never doubt it because it's true, first of all, and also because it's so indescribably better than the fantasy world. It defines our life and it gives our lives meaning. And it determines and gives shapes to our future and the future of the cosmos. And, and even as you hold to this, you'll still hear the cynical mocking. You hear the chuckles and the jokes about creationists. You hear the scoffing comments about the flood and the miracles and the Red Sea crossing and the virgin birth and the resurrection. And we think when we hear that stuff, wow, maybe they've got something figured out. Maybe, maybe they know something I don't know. They're so smart. They're so erudite. They're so attractive. They're on TV and, and they're professors. So they must know something. They must know something I don't know. And I'm kind of backwards and I'm kind of confused and maybe I'm wrong. You and I must be reminded that these things really happened and either they really happened or the world has no hope. Either these things have really happened or we have wasted our lives. We have followed a lie. We are still in our sins and there is no savior. This is it. This is the only, this is the only lifeboat. This is the only ark. This is, this is the only bus leaving the station. This is, this is the only ride. There's not another way. This is our only chance. It's the only consistent message. It's the only way to live. The resurrection of Jesus is the only hope for humanity and for the world. So don't ever be tempted to doubt. I wonder if we pick the right religion. You know, there's so many out there and some you get to wear funny hats and others you get to wear funny clothes and you get different things you can't eat. I wonder if, I wonder if we have the right one. I mean, there's so many options. Well, first of all, you didn't choose God. He chose you, so, so put that away, first of all. And second, if the gospel's false, if the gospel of Jesus Christ is false, there are no other options. There are no other opportunities. And I'm kind of happy about that because I'm, I'm, I love Jesus. And I'm, I'm really happy. <laughs> I don't want anybody but Jesus. I don't want to know. It, it, there's, there's nothing else. Either the resurrection is true or nothing is true. It's Jesus or nothing. Those are your options. Jesus or nothing. That's it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for Jesus. We give you thanks for his work on the cross. We give you thanks for his work in going to the grave and for his work of resurrection, that you gave him new life and you vindicated him before all the scoffers and you vindicated him before all the cynics. And we thank you that he now is ruling at your right hand and because of the power that you displayed through his resurrection, he, he reigns now and will continue to reign until every enemy 
is vanquished. And we delight and we rejoice that you have chosen us to join you in that mission in dominion over the world. So, Father, we praise you and we have nothing but thanks. Continue to conform us to his image. We rejoice this day in the resurrection of our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.